Welcome to the Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast website, the Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic, as well as other readings and activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In our last installment, we talked about the Fatimid Caliphate, a rival Ismaili dynasty to the Abbasid Caliphs in Baghdad. And we also explored the global connections that sources from the Fatimid world reveal. In this episode, we're thinking about the legacy of Muslim rule in a space that we'll call Al-Andalus for the modern world. This is all a big interconnected world. And these points of connection, this interconnectedness, uh, the imperial framing is just one way of thinking about it. There are lots of different ways of thinking about it. And we often think of these big moments of connection and exchange in world history as being something that's limited to the West, right? The sort of Columbus's voyage and the transfer of crops to the New World, for example, what we call the Columbian Exchange. That this moment where Europeans go out into the world, this is the age of discovery. This is in the, the age in which new connections are being made, like new encounters are happening. And when we think of the East, we often think of civilizations. We think of Muslim civilization. We think of the sort of the Indus civilization. We think of Chinese civilization. And we think of these civilizations, in a sense, like billiard balls that bounce off against the one, one another on the, the grand sort of pool table of the world. But they're not that. These are groups that are deeply intertwined with one another in lots and lots and lots of different ways. And thinking about the spread of crops... Well, that's one way we can get at how these places are actually intertwined with one another and how these things move across the world as being in many ways, and I hate to say it, in many ways like incredibly unremarkable because of course they would. Why wouldn't they? All sorts of other things are moving. And it is our own uh, historical blinders that make us think that this is something new. Even the, the very notion that this is something that's coming from outside suggests that there are boundaries to these civilizations, that there is an inside and there's an outside. Fahad Bishara teaches courses on the economic history of the Islamic world and the Indian Ocean at University of Virginia. He urges against thinking of globalization as a recent or wholly modern phenomenon. In many ways, the world economy of today is much more interconnected than it was in the past, but our world also has many political boundaries and barriers that simply did not exist before the emergence of modern nation-states. People, ideas, and as Fahad Bishara and I discuss later, crops, moved relatively freely, though these movements were not always well documented. Throughout this episode, we're going to be challenging some of the conceptual boundaries that have often divided the study of the past. In an old way of framing things, the medieval world was often divided into two spheres, Christendom, or the Christian world, on one hand, and the Islamic world on the other. In the modern period, what was Christendom basically became the West, whereas the Islamic world was part of the East, or the Orient. The notion of the Orient has long fallen out of favor with historians, and in more recent decades, so too has the notion of the West. 
Iberia is one of the great places for examining the problems with these conceptual boundaries. For 700 years, there was this very large Muslim territory, Muslim-ruled territory in Europe that was there for a very long time and had its own culture that was in constant contact with Christian European kingdoms and also in constant and very close contact with other areas of the Muslim world. You know, in no way can we think of Europe as a non-Muslim space. I spoke to University of Toronto professor Jeannie Miller about Muslim Iberia and its relationship to European history. Even when scholars acknowledge or even celebrate the history of Al-Andalus, it's often treated as a historical aberration because of its different historical trajectory from other parts of the Islamic world. If you're going to give the history of, of Iberia, right, which is the geographical area of Spain and Portugal, If you look at very traditional close-minded Spanish perspective, which is obviously not all Spanish historians are like this in any way, but I'm just taking the most extreme account of this. The storyline is that Spain from the beginning was somehow Western or European, and then there was this sort of occupation, very superficial occupation by these Arabic-speaking Muslim overlords who were there, but there was still this like latent westernness somehow underlying all that in the population, which then was liberated by the reconquest when Christian territories to the north, Christian kingdoms to the north conquered or reconquered, according to that narrative, uh, Muslim Spain. And so in this sense, the true Spain is Christian and speaking Latin languages and has a sort of European Spanish quote, Western identity. So this is a really weird way to think about it because at the time of the so-called Reconquista or the conquest of Andalus by um, Christians, uh, at that time, Spain had been ruled by Muslims or Iberia had been ruled by Muslims for only a few decades less time than Iraq had been. So (laughs) if we think about like Baghdad, the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, it had only been, that whole territory had only been ruled by Muslims for, you know, a few hundred years. Meanwhile, we look at the moment of the conquest of Iberia by Christians, and there's like many more centuries of Muslim rule going on there. So it's really kind of silly to claim that somehow that like experience wasn't part of Iberian culture. And of course, when we look at actual histories of Andalusian culture, it's quite obviously a really fascinating, special place that is suffused with Arabic and Islamic ideas, and uh, as well as a lot of actually really important contributions by Christians and Jews. Newer scholarship on Muslim Iberia increasingly treats it as a distinctive center of the Islamic world and emphasizes its connections to North Africa and beyond. To learn more about the state of the field, I spoke with Mohammed Balan, who teaches in the Department of History at Stony Brook University. Uh, yeah, I'm in a quiet space. I'm at home. so Or as I call it now, my office. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm in my office too. Right. It's actually a lot nicer than my office. <laughs> right, right. Balan works on what we might think of as the last generation of Muslim scholars and statesmen to live in Al-Andalus. As he explained when we spoke this fall, studying the history of Al-Andalus requires grappling with a vast amount of time and space, and understanding the plurality of historical experiences contained within Muslim Iberia. We're talking about, a, about eight centuries. We basically have an entity 
Al-Andalus, right, as it's called, Islamic Spain and Portugal, that takes us from late antiquity into the beginnings of early modernity. We straddle two worlds. We have inevitably, right? I mean, just given the sources that we use, given the kind of geographic and cultural spaces that we work on, we are kind of in some ways um, straddling the histories of Latin Christendom, uh, which is sometimes associated with the history of Europe and the histories of the Islamic world, which is usually associated with the history of North Africa and the Middle East. Spain is this kind of very um, kind of hybrid space, so to speak, liminal space, let's say, where we have to kind of think about both sets of sources, both sets of questions, both sets of historiographies. Uh, if I may add as well, we also straddle the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, which gets more exciting as we get close to the 15th and the 16th centuries. The history of Al-Andalus begins with the Muslim conquest of the 8th century. So 711, 712, we see the beginnings of the Muslim conquest of Visigothic Hispania. The Visigoths, of course, being the sort of surviving remnants of the Germanic uh, groups that sacked Rome in 410. They end up settling in Iberia. They form a kingdom. They convert to Catholicism around 589. It's a pretty centralized kingdom. But in 711, there's a confrontation, uh, the Battle of Guadalate in southern Spain, between a reconnaissance force led by, as far as we know, a small-time military commander, Tarek ibn Ziyad, it wasn't intended to conquer, they win. That's as much as we know <laughs> about this battle and the consequences are tremendous. Within seven years, they're already in the Pyrenees. They've established pacts with local Visigothic commanders, uh, surrender agreements, and they've secured their power over most of the Iberian Peninsula, these Muslim forces. But it's important to think about the composition of these Muslim forces, right? They're composed of not only... Syrian Jund, right? Basically centralized Umayyad forces who answer to Syrians, to Damascus, but local Berber troops. And the Berbers, of course, are the Amazigh, right? As they're more properly called today. Berber is, of course, a very problematic term. I'll be using it only here as a shorthand for a, a very complicated ethno-linguistic group. They had just been incorporated into the expanding Umayyad polity a decade previous. So we need to really think about the completely disparate elements that constitute this so-called conquering force, right? Not that much is known about the first decades of Muslim presence in Iberia. And it's hard to imagine how people understood what was happening at the time. Jockeying for power among local kingdoms was business as usual in both North Africa and Iberia since the decline of Rome. Perhaps the Muslims were just another new element, like the Visigoths had been in the 5th century. On the other hand, these years are often cast as being quite important in the history of Europe, France in particular. The defeat of the Muslim advance is often seen as a defining moment in the kingdoms that became modern France. The fact that Muslims ruled a region of southern France called Septimania is less discussed. They were mere decades, and long ago of course, but still, France only ruled Morocco for about four decades, and Lebanon and Syria for an even shorter period. Now, the French colonial state of the 20th century and the Arab armies that invaded Iberia during the 8th century were, of course, very different entities. But still, it's an interesting footnote. Political rule in Al-Andalus became more centralized following the Abbasid Revolution of 750, when Iberia became a place of refuge for the ousted Umayyad dynasty. By 750, 756, we see the rise of a new polity altogether, which is the Umayyad Emirates which is an outgrowth of the civil wars that happened in the East. Abdurrahman I, an Umayyad prince, fleeing the Abbasid onslaught, 
establishes a following in North Africa first, because his mother was one of these Amazigh tribes, right? He's, she was a member of one of these Amazigh tribes. He mobilizes his maternal lineage, so to speak, cobbles together a disparate force of people, finds supporters in Iberia, and establishes an independent emirate. And this would last until the 1030s, 1031 to be exact. So from 756 to 1031, we're talking about a different political formation. It's not inevitable that we will witness an independent Al-Andalus. But this is what happens. And it does come out of the civil wars of the 8th century. This is where really we see the formation, the foundations of Islamic society, politics, intellectual traditions, Arabic in Al-Andalus. Independent of the Abbasids of Baghdad, the new Umayyad offshoot built an empire in Al-Andalus. Under a single ruler, Islam and its institutions began to spread. And then right around the time when the Fatimids, the protagonists of our previous episode, declared themselves caliphs, the Umayyads did the same in Iberia. 929 is a real turning point in some respects because we see the declaration of an Umayyad caliphate uh, by Abdurrahman III, the descendant of Abdurrahman I. And he proclaims the Umayyads a caliphate, and this is in direct response to the threat of the Fatimids in North Africa in 909. Just to give you a sense of how Umayyad politics, Andalusi politics, society, culture is in direct conversation with what's happening across the Straits and always has been and always will be uh, throughout medieval history. I mean, these are two parts of the world that are very closely connected. They're separated by only a few miles. It's, they're very close together, culturally, linguistically, even legally. I mean, the Maliki right, which predominates in North Africa, also predominates in Al-Andalus. The Maliki jurists who get their start in Cordoba started off in Qairawan, Qairawan being the big sort of intellectual heartland of Islam in North Africa. So we're talking about individuals, but we're also talking about texts that circulate. We're talking about commodities. We're talking about architectural styles. We're talking about manuscript traditions. And we're talking about money, of course, as well, most, most importantly. From the inception of Andalusi history, to the very end of um, the political history of Al-Andalus. The relationship or interrelationship between North Africa and Spain, Iberia, will be a very important factor in the transformations that occur locally, within both, in fact. One of the most vibrant periods in the formation of Al-Andalus was the period of the party kings. 1031, uh, the caliphate fragments into several dozen little states uh, called party kings, Muluka Tawa'if, Reyes de Taifas, as they're called in Spanish, each of which controls its little power base. But each of these power bases was based on sort of political social formations that already existed in the late Umayyad period. So we have Taifa kingdoms that are based around the authority of local bodies, as in the case of Sivo, right? These guys had little private armies that they could pay for. They were able to kind of reconstruct the city's walls using their very considerable inheritance of wealth, right? They could collect taxes. This is what makes you a ruler in the Middle Ages. Uh, others are actually a former royal guards of the Umayyads, like the Saqaliba, as they're called, right? So often translated, or I would say mistranslated as Slavs, these are, these are really people who were descendants of European converts to Islam, type of Mamluk system, we can say. Saqalabi here just means anything from Basque to Frank to German to Slavic to Italian to Saxon even. These are people who came from disparate backgrounds. But in the time of period, they come to find some source of unity. And they actually have their own Shu'abiyya movement. You see like some kind of 
revival of the old Shoabia movement of the Abbasid period among these people, uh, led by one Ibn Garcia al-Bashkunsi, right? Ibn Garcia the Basque, as he was called. We see other entities, and these were by far the most predominant, based around the authority of Berber military commanders who were involved, who were brought into the peninsula in the 10th century. And so we do have an kind of a, and I use this term very loosely, an ethnic component to uh, the fragmentation of Al-Andalus in the 11th century. By the late 11th century, uh, we see Al-Andalus incorporated into the expanding Almoravid, Almorabit empire based in North Africa. This is a large Berber confederation, uh, Sanhaja Berber confederation, and Al-Andalus becomes sort of an um, appendage, so to speak, to a larger political entity. And this is actually what brings Andalus and, and, uh, and North Africa back into very close political association. The Almoravids are eventually overthrown by the Almohads in 1147. Uh, the Almohads are an even more important confederation, a Masmuda Berber confederation, based in the High Atlas Mountains. Um, so here we start to see uh, a further incorporation until the fragmentation of, Umay- of um, Almohad power, excuse me, in the 1220s. And by the 1230s, we see the Nasrids emerge as one of the last remnants not the only remnant, but one of the last remnants of Umayyad, of, uh, of, of Almohad power, uh, meaning they're a successor state to the Almohads. Uh, and they successfully ensure that they are the last successor state to the Almohads. They basically take out the rivals, either through assassination, collaboration with the Christians, or through just simply surviving. <laughs> right? They, they're able to engage in this kind of game of power politics. And they survive, the, the Nasrids, uh, the Banu Nasr, they survive into... The, 1492. From, from 1232 to 1492, this makes it one of the last, longest lasting dynasties in the history of Al-Andalus. But what we do see with the Nasrids, with the Almohads, with the Umayyads, is the importance of cities. And this is like another way we can periodize. So some people have spoken about the Visigoths as the Toledan period, so to speak, of Iberia. Because Toledo in central Iberia was their capital. With the rise of the Umayyads, we start to see Cordoba being given this really preeminent status. So the history of Al-Andalus in many ways is a very Cordoban-centered history in a lot of ways. You have to remember, Al-Andalus is a big place, right? We often use this word Andalusia, which I do find to be a little bit confusing because Andalusia is only southern Spain. Many Muslim populations lived closer to the Pyrenees in places like Huesca, for example, which gets really cold in winter. This is why a lot of Maliki fiqh has questions about what do you do when it gets too cold? Can you take refuge in a church, for example, in the Pyrenees? It's not a hypothetical question if you live up there. A lot of Muslims live in near what's today Portugal. They lot, lots of them live near Valencia, right? And are based around Valencia. So this is a really important aspect to think about. After Cordoba, we start to see Seville rise to a position of preeminence under the Almohads. All of these cities were already important before these dynasties took them over. But they're sort of the fact that we have these power bases shifting is, is an important thing to keep in mind until we see the rise of Granada. And each of these local bases starts to become a little bit of a, an imperial center in its own way. And we start to see local histories being written about them. You're probably already getting a sense of the extent of social and cultural diversity that comprised the Landalus. And at no point was Muslim Iberia exclusively Muslim. So the population of Al-Andalus, Islamic Spain, and Portugal is extremely diverse on every level, religiously, ethnically, linguistically. The Muslim population, as I mentioned, is very heterogeneous. It's not a monolith. So we have the, the Arab and the Berber settlers 
who conquer the peninsula and come in. These are by far the minority of the Muslim population. Over centuries of acculturation and conversion, we start to see the emergence of an Andalusi society, a distinctly Andalusi society, composed of the intermarriages, the uh, integration of not only Arabs and Berbers, who to some degree still maintain separate identities, especially tribal identities, but locals, local Iberian converts to Islam, Hispano-Roman and Visigothic converts to Islam. Uh, Jews, many Jews convert to Islam as well. So conversion, as I mentioned, right, the Europeans who are brought in, uh, many of whom are brought in as slaves, of course. So slavery is a mechanism through integ of integration in this period. So conversion, enslavement, acculturation, all of these are tools of conversion. But acculturation did not necessitate conversion. You know, it's not, they're not the same thing. Many local Christians and Jews adopt Arabic culture and dress and language and excel in producing amazing works, a high level intellectual works of philosophy and theology. And they speak better Arabic in some cases than some of the descendants of the conquerors, but they're not Muslims. They're as Christian or Jewish as they've been since the Visigothic period. These are called Mozarabs in the Christian, uh, in the Christian context and Andalusi Jews are just called Al-Yahud, right? The Jews. We see the emergence of new identities, basically. And there are still Christians in Northern Spain. They're, they're different, though. They're not the same. They're not Arabic-speaking. They're Latin-speaking in northern Spain. In the south, where we see Muslim control, there is an adoption of Arabic, just like we see in the east with the Syriac-speaking Christians. Uh, we don't know to what degree Latin continued to be an active language among these Andalusi Christians, but we do have laments from the 9th century of priests um, saying um, the youth have abandoned you know, Latin for Arabic. It seems to be a trend that happened. And uh, on the Jewish side, of course, we also see, you know, we see sectarian diversity among the various Jewish groups. And uh, among Muslims as well, I mean, we do have evidence that there were not, it wasn't just Sunnis running around Al-Andalus, right? We have evidence of Shi'is and Ibadis as well. And as I mentioned, linguistically, this means that we actually also have a vast diversity of languages that were spoken. In addition to Latin, aside from Latin and Arabic, we also have Hebrew. And we also have an emerging romance that's being spoken, to say nothing of the various Berber dialects that one could find in southern and eastern Spain. So this is really important. We speak about Al-Andalus. We are not speaking about Arab Spain, which is a word that's been used, let alone Moorish Spain, whatever that means. This is actually the problem with that word Moor or Moorish. It really conceals the degree of diversity that we're talking about here. And it also kind of obscures the fact that they had their own indigenous category for thinking about their society. And that word was Andalusi, Iberian. Andalusi was a category that, was, uh, that does appear in our sources. And this is what it refers to. It could refer to Muslims, it could refer to Christians, it could refer to Jews. Anyone living within the confines of Al-Andalus. The creation of a regional Andalusi identity is significant for a couple of reasons. One is that it transcended political and even religious divisions in terms of its scope of meaning. The other is that being from Al-Andalus meant something both to people who were from there and for those they encountered either in travel or through the movement of texts into and out of Iberia. By the 9th century, right, so within, a, let's say, a century of the conquest, the term starts to mean uh, inhabitant of that part of the Islamic world in the same way that, you know, Shami or Iraqi would be used to describe people who lived in that general geographic vicinity. What is a geographic designation? It's not an ethnonym. 
it doesn't refer to any kind of racial or ethnic designation. And at times, it could be religiously inflected. Andalusi could be used to refer exclusively to the Muslim population. But we also know that many Christians and Jews use it as a self-designation. Al-Andalusi, as a nisbah, right, as a um, patronymic, uh, was simply that. It was, I come from this part of the world, so to speak. The same way that Al-Maqdisi means someone who comes from Jerusalem. Or Al-Dimashti means someone who comes from Damascus. As you might know, I mean, the word Moor and Moorish has been used far too often in the scholarship and in popular writing about this part of the world. And that really obscures so much. Andalusis viewed themselves as part of a larger Islamic world. Andalusi Muslims viewed themselves as part of a larger Islamic world. Uh, the Maliki ulama who lived in Al-Andalus made pilgrimage to Mecca, right? They were in touch with people in North Africa, in the East, in the Islamic East. Muslim theologians in Al-Andalus, Muslim populations uh, saw themselves as part of a, a larger ummah. Yet they also view themselves as a community with distinct cultural practices. And they were viewed as such by their Eastern uh, counterparts. We start to see the slow demarcation between Maghrib and Mashraq. West Maghrib and East Mashraq in the Middle Ages. This is not a modern distinction. This is a distinction that was actually very intelligible to someone in the 12th century. And the best, most interesting source to look at for this is no less a figure than Ibn Jubair, the very famous Granadan, uh, sorry, Valencian uh, traveler who visited Salahuddin's Ayyubid Sultanate in the uh, 12th century on his way to Mecca. And I, I just suggest that you take a look at how he describes Mashruqis. And he says very clearly at one point in the text, there is no Islam, there is no faith, there is no culture outside the Maghrib. So it's like this Almohad propagandistic kind of narrative, so to speak. But it also is underpinned by this notion of we are a separate cultural entity to some degree. So there are like glimmers of this, right? But this has to always be understood in the context of a cultural polemic between different parts of the same Islamic world. We see this in Christendom as well in the same period, right? Like no one would contest that the Byzantines and the Latin Christians would consider themselves Christians, but we would never say they are part of the exact same cultural and political formation. I think that's what's really at stake here when we talk about Al-Andalus as distinct uh, from the Mashruq. But we also have to think about, and this is the harder question to get at, what is the relationship between Al-Andalus and North Africa then? And because there, there is also a kind of a contested relationship between those two spaces throughout the Middle Ages into the early modern period, in fact, where we can speak of them as distinct societies, but we can also speak of them as societies that developed in tandem, you know, in conversation. There's almost a dialectic even in the way that they thought of each other. The Andalusis in many ways, as Ramzi Ruwiri's excellent work has shown, really define themselves in opposition to North Africa, uh, which speaks not, not to the distinctiveness of Andalusi society from North African society, but actually to their, to their proximity, to their closeness. It was a big part of the cultural polemic. Another reason why the distinctiveness of Al-Andalus in cultural and intellectual terms is significant is that as Muslim rulers fell to Christian kingdoms, the people of Al-Andalus were dispersed both within the new Christian kingdoms as well as throughout the Islamic world. So what's really uh, important is to think about this question of diaspora, of an Andalusi diaspora. As the Christian kingdoms of the north, Aragon, Castile, 
and Portugal start to push further south uh, into the lands formerly dominated by Muslim kingdoms and emirates, uh, we start to see two things happen. The first and the most important phenomenon is the absorption of these Muslim communities into their new social and political frameworks of the Christian kingdoms. And what they usually do uh, is sort of just tolerate them as subordinate minorities. In some ways, the kind of inversion of the dhimmi system. So as long as you pay your taxes, don't lead uprisings, and you know, like the king, uh, we'll tolerate you and even protect you from any assault against your faith. You're allowed to practice your religion. This leads to a new class of people called mudejars, uh, from the Arabic mudajan. So that's by far the most important sort of arrangement that emerges. But many leading members of Islamic society have no desire to live under Christian rule. So what they do, and this includes scholars, poets, artisans. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, some of them stay because there is a market actually in Christian Spain for uh, Islamic artifacts and architecture, right? We do see distinctive architectural styles, including what's called the Mudejar style of architecture. But many of them flee south or east for, you know, new patrons and new courts, right? Uh, and for many of these, it's just, this is a religious obligation. Uh, this is a huge debate in the juristic literature. Uh, the impermissibility or permissibility of residing under non-Muslim political control. Uh, because for them, there's, there's a lot at stake here, theologically, from endorsing the legitimacy of non-Muslim rule. This is a question, of course, that would be very important for many different Muslims across history. So many of them actually flee not only to the other courts of Al-Andalus, and of course, by the 14th, 13th century, there's only one left, which is Granada, not everyone wants to live in Granada for reasons I cannot fathom, but <laughs> uh, some go to North Africa, Marrakesh, Fez, some go to Tilmesan, which is in today's Algeria, uh, and some go to Tunis, but others actually go further east. Some go to Damascus, some go to Anatolia, some go as, fur, as far east as Iraq, some go to Mecca and Medina. Alexandria becomes a favorite spot of refuge for a lot of Andalusis. And this is already happening in the 11th century. We have a very famous case of an Andalusi emigre uh, named Atturtushi, Abu Bakr Atturtushi, who is an extremely important political theorist. He writes of work called Siraj al-Muluk. He finds refuge in Alexandria under the Fatimids. This person is a diehard Maliki. He writes the Kitab al-Bida, the book of innovations, right? It's like an encyclopedia of what you, all the no-nos, basically, of Islamic fiqh, right? He finds in Fatimid Alexandria a patron, and he resides there and he, he builds the community, the Andalusi Maliki community there, uh, which is an extraordinary development. Again, this is an early example from the late 11th, early 12th century of this happening. By the way, when, when he's there, right, he brings with him intellectual impact, right? He brings with him cultural impact, right? He cultivates a community. It shows you that the, Im the impact that immigration has, the impact that diaspora has on host societies. One of the major impacts of the Andalusi diaspora was in the practice of Sufism the centrality of which we discussed at length in a prior episode on the Turco-Persian world. In that episode, we dealt with the life of the 13th century mystic and poet Rumi. He's certainly one of the most famous Sufis of all time. But there was an Andalusi mystic who might be equally significant. The most famous case of an Andalusi emigre, and I think you know what I'm about to say, is no less a figure than Muhyiddin ibn Arabi the very famous mystic, the Sheikh al-Akbar, so to speak, right? whose tomb is in Damascus, but who actually spent much of his time kind of traveling around the Islamic East, 
so he leaves, he's from Morcia. He's born into an actual, actually an aristocratic family in Morcia. His father was a military commander, but he decides to leave Al-Andalus when he's a young man, goes east for Hajj and never returns. So he ends up residing in the east. He eventually, you know, builds his community in Damascus and his impact cannot be overstated. I mean, he's probably the single most influential Andalusian mystic in Islamic history. One would even say the most influential mystic uh, in the post-classical Islamic world. This leads to the formation, the foundations of Akbarian thought. And his intellectual religious network extends everywhere from Konya to Egypt to Al-Andalus to Iran in this period. Much of what Ibn Arabi was about, much of what he did uh, emerged out of Al-Andalus initially. I mean, a lot of his sort of uh, thought was shaped by local trends. There's a very long and distinguished history of philosophical Sufism in Islamic Iberia that goes back to the 9th and 10th centuries. Uh, we ha- he's part of a long line, essentially, of Andalusian mystics. But what he does in the East, again, and this is part of, I think, the importance of migration in rethinking you know, human history in some respects, if I may say that, it interacts with local modes of thought as well. So we should never limit Ibn Arabi's thought to just simply being Andalusi thought. It develops really in close conversation with what's happening in the Mashraf as well. His most important years, foundational years, were spent in Al-Andalus, but he grew, he evolved as he spent more and more time in the East and during a very interesting time. I mean, he's in the East between 1200 and 1240. Some of the most eventful developments are happening in this period. But when it comes to mystics in particular, I think it's really interesting to think about how Akbarianism and Akbarian thought gets received in Al-Andalus and the Maghrib, not directly through Ibn Arabi, but through his Mashraqi disciples. So Ibn Arabi goes east, develops his thought there, and then Eastern, the Eastern reception of his thought is what is then kind of received back in the Maghrib, so to speak, in Al-Andalus. And it's very controversial. Uh, in some respects, Akbari, uh, Akbarian thought is far more controversial in his local Al-Andalus than it is in Syria, in Anatolia, or in Iran, uh, which is quite interesting. He provides us with a really useful case study. What makes him really important as well is that he represents a new type of Andalusi emigre who stays in the Mashraq. Many of these people leave, they go on their rihla, so to speak, they go on their hajj, their, their journey in search of knowledge, but they return to the Maghrib. The significance of the Andalusi diaspora for the Islamic world was tremendous. In a later episode of this series, we'll talk more about the history of how Muslims and Jews were eliminated from Iberia after so many centuries of the three Abrahamic religions living side by side. But for the remainder of this episode, we're going to switch gears and talk about the legacy of Al-Andalus for Europe and the modern world through the lens of two very different kinds of culture, literature and agriculture. So there's a very influential book um, that was very controversial when it came out by someone named Maria Rosamenical, um, who died 2012, called The Arabic Role in Medieval Literary History. This book basically asks us to reconsider this concept that we have of Western culture. Um, So this is a critique that is coming through literary studies, um, mainly because the core 
way that we teach and argue for this concept of like a Western cultural block is comes through uh, these national literature stories. So when you think, what does it mean to be English? Um, things It'll go back to Chaucer or like all these different national literatures of these European countries are very central to how they conceive their cultural identity as distinct from other places. So the argument that she makes is basically that when we look at these new vernacular literatures that were popping up in Europe, vernacular being like the local language as opposed to Latin, which was a lingua franca in Europe, um, that uh, in fact, central to all of this is the fact that there was a huge number of Muslims and Arabic speakers who were living in Europe um, throughout the Middle Ages. So part of the, and so she gives kind of a, a dating to when we start trying to think of Europe as a non-Muslim geography, right? And like when it suddenly became Europe versus Islam or European culture versus Arabic or Muslim culture, that these were somehow opposites. Um, so that wasn't always the case uh, ideologically, and it's certainly not the case historically. You know, when I teach, I have these two slides, which are just sort of shamelessly cribbed from Maria Rosamanical's book, that really illustrate this a sort of change in European attitudes from the 12th century to the 14th century, right, which is when this transition sort of occurred. So if we look at the 12th century in Europe, this is something that has been characterized as the 12th century Renaissance, which was full of like a uh, admiration for lots of elements of Arabic culture. So Arabic science, astronomy, medicine, there was lots of translations going on. And, you know, Averroes was being translated and actually revolutionized Christian theology. So this is not limited to the secular sphere necessarily. Less famous the, is the literary impact that Arabic letters were having at the time. But that's also very important. We can talk about that later. So maybe if we listen to the voice of this 12th century person, Adelard of Bath, he says, Our generation suffers from a deep-seated reluctance to accept anything on the authority of a modern thinker. Modern, obviously, being 12th century. Therefore, whenever I want to present a notion of my own, I attribute it to someone else by declaring it was so-and-so who said it, not I. In order to avoid the unpleasant consequences of having anyone think that someone as ignorant as myself has the temerity to offer his own ideas, I let it be supposed that I have come across them in my studies of Arabic works. Should what I say displease little minds, I do not wish to be the one who displeases them. Uh, I know how true scholars suffer at the hands of common men. Thus, it is not my own cause that I plead, but rather that of the Arabs." So that quote pretty clearly shows that, at least in many circles, saying that you learned something by reading it in Arabic was a mark of prestige. And it was a way to validate and justify that learning because everyone knew that Arabic sciences were really, really advanced. Um, and that applied also to philosophy, ethics, insofar as these are Christians for the most part when we're talking about Christian Europe, so they don't want anything Muslim specifically, but as long as it doesn't look Muslim, like the ethics also are seen to be very advanced and useful. So this was a mark of prestige at that point. Contrast this with Petrarch um, 200 years later, 
who says in a letter to a physician, of course, physicians were known to rely very heavily on uh, Muslim medicine. I beseech you that these Arabs of yours be kept off, that they be exiled from all your advice to me. I hate the whole race. So it's a total transformation, right? And then Pico della Marandola, a century later in Italy, says, leave to us in heaven's name Pythagoras, Plato, and Aristotle, and keep your Omar, your Alcabitius, your Ebn Zohar, and your Ebn Ragal. All of these are like Latinized versions of famous Arabic language authors. So there's this moment in the Renaissance era when Europeans actively tried to take all of this stuff that they had gotten from Arabic culture and just remove all of its markers of being in the Arabic language or from a Muslim context. So there's kind of like a whitewashing that goes on, and then suddenly all this stuff are European innovations, according to the perspective of these Renaissance thinkers. One of the evidences of Muslim influence on European culture is the ubiquity of frame narratives. Canterbury Tales is an example of a frame narrative. Bocaccio's Decameron is an example of a frame narrative. Libro de Moramor in Spanish. All of the really foundational, like what you're going to read first in any survey of like a European literature class, you're going to find a frame narrative kind of right at the beginning that has historical direct links to the way that Arabic frame tales were developing in uh, El Andalus and a really uh, multi-religious and you might say multicultural uh, environment. The term frame narrative might sound like literary jargon. But I bet most of the listeners have encountered a frame narrative before in book, TV, or film. All it is is a base story that contains many stories within it. A story within a story is such a common device today that it might seem impossible to imagine that it had ever been invented at all. And as Jeannie Miller just explained, frame narratives are among the earliest examples of European literature. But there's a compelling argument that the structure of the frame narrative was adapted from the literature of Elendilus where this mode of storytelling present throughout the Islamic world was translated into European languages. The most important frame tales in, in this context are Kalila with Demna and the Book of Sindbar the Wise, which is also known as the Seven Sages of Rome in its European translations, and also something in Arabic called the Maqamet, which didn't get directly translated, but had a big impact on the kinds of narratives that did get translated and that also served as sort of a background for other works that were influential. A frame tale is just stories within stories. That's what it means. So there's usually, it's like, if you think of Thousand and One Nights, that's the most famous one today, like Thousand and One Nights, you've got Shahrazad, who's telling stories to the king, Shahriar. So there's the frame the frame narrative is Shahrazad and Shahriar and their dra- drama and then inside of that you have enframed tales which are stories that she tells so this is a sp- very specific type of organizing collections of stories because it dramatizes the storytelling setting it also suggests that storytelling acts as argumentation because usually the person telling the story has a particular reason for telling the story. 
there's like some interest in how the story ends up getting received too, because sometimes the person they're talking to maybe reads the story a little bit differently than they're intended to, right? There's always different ways of interpreting the story. So this ends up being kind of a meditation on how do we understand the stories that we're being told and how can we learn to understand them better for our own lives. Khalidah Wadimna and um, Sindbad the Wise are a little bit different from Thousand and One Nights because the tales that are inframed are mostly like fables. So they tend to be stories with a moral to them that are sort of contained, right? Um, and they're much more explicitly argumentative. So like Sindabar the Wise is actually like a rape trial between the king's wife and his son because she's accused the son of raping her and so it's over the course of seven days each side gets to tell stories that are supposed to convince the king you know of their respective positions in this trial so it's a very explicit argumentative structure for storytelling. Kili Lewudimna is a little bit more political in its orientation. It's like two, it's a animal-based storytelling where there's like the frame narrative has two jackals who are like advisors to the lion king, the king who is a lion, and they debate each other about certain nefarious meddling strategies that one of the jackals wants to pursue. So there's some p- political theory as well as just general strategy and like ethics in there. So a lot of those specific stories from the Sindbad the Wise and from Kililuwadimna get incorporated into a lot of these European frame tales. We also start to see translations of those frame tales into Castilian and into Latin as well. So Kililuwadimna, its Castilian translation, which was sponsored by Alfonso X, is the first narrative prose in Spanish. Right? So if you're looking at a history of Spanish prose literature, the first work you can look at is this translation from Arabic of Khalil Wadimna. As Christian kingdoms expanded in Iberia, Andalusis who lived under Muslim rule took on a prominent role at their courts, and they brought many forms of knowledge with them. One of the most influential ones is Disciplina Clericalis, which is like it's a it's an original work in Latin, but it's a frame tale, so it's a conversation between student and master, which is most of the tales are taken from Arabic and Hebrew sources. So the interesting thing about this, right, is that it the translation was done like around eleven. 10, I guess, by someone named Petrus Alfonsi, or aka Moshe. So this is an Andalusi Jewish man who was living in Aragon in 1106 when he converted. Aragon is like a northern area in Iberia that had recently been conquered by uh, Christians. So he was now under Christian rule, but he certainly grew up under Muslim rule. Whether that was in Aragon or further south, we don't know, right? So he was living the experience of the Reconquista from the perspective of someone who had Arabic and Hebrew literary culture. So this is something that is really worth mentioning. Like it was after the Christian conquests happened, because of the prestige of Arabic learning and the mistrust of Muslims and Islam as a religion in these Christian territories, Jews actually came to serve a really important role as translators um, and as people who could provide a window onto Arabic learning. And that was possible because they were so fully integrated into the high intellectual life 
of Muslim al-Andalus prior to these Christian conquests. Petrus Alfonsi was one of these elite intellectual Jews writing in Arabic, fully educated also in Hebrew, of course, and under pressure then following the Christian conquests, under pressure to uh, convert. So he did convert to Christianity, but he, he used his knowledge of Arabic literary and scientific culture to make a name for himself in this new Christian space that he was participating in. So he wrote as a Christian author, but he quite explicitly let it be known that he was bringing this knowledge into a Christian cultural environment. So like a lot of the stories in Disciplina Clericalis are set in Baghdad or like other Muslim environments in Egypt, whatever. Like it's not like he's hiding the origin of these stories at all. He, he wrote sort of digests in various scientific fields. And then he, and he ended up being extremely famous. There are like over 70 manuscripts surviving of Disciplina Clericalis in Latin. It was a very, very popular work. You have stories from it that get taken up by all the famous writers in Europe. Like it goes into Shakespeare, it goes into Boccaccio. You know, these stories circulated like crazy and became really one of the very important narrative core sources for the development of European narrative. So that's very important. And I think it highlights the role of these um, elite intellectual uh, Jews that were educated in Arabic literary circles. Kelila Wadimna was translated in 1251 into Castilian under the title Kelila Edenia. Um, so that was commissioned by Alfonso X, ruler of Castile, um, who lived 1221 to 1284. He was a very important patron of science literature and especially translation from the Arabic. So he is sort of the second in line of a sequence of um, like Christian notables who were hiring whole translator workshops like to sort of at a large scale translate lots of things uh, from Arabic into European languages. Um, his predecessor was more interested in Latin. Yeah, this is somebody in Toledo called the Archbishop Raymond of Toledo um, in the late 12th century. So he also had a very large uh, circle of translators that he was employing um, from Arabic, in that case to Latin, whereas Alfonso X was more interested in translation from Arabic to Castilian because he wanted to promote Castilian as a vernacular. These translators though we don't really know anything about them because their translations are largely anonymous. So we could guess that many of them may have been Jewish, but we just, we don't know that much about it. And then you have an Italian Jew who converted to Christianity, Johannes of Capua, who did a Latin translation of the Hebrew version of Kelila Wadimna, which he called in Latin Directorium Vitae Humanae, <laughs> how to direct human life in a good and ethical framework. So that was between 1263 and 1278. So this is sort of the 11th, the 12th and 13th century translation movement um, that was going on, which is sort of coterminous, happening at the same time or contemporaneous with the 12th century Renaissance more broadly. And this had a very invigorating effect on narrative, but also on all the other things, right? Vernacular literatures, there was a revival of classical Latin going on at the time, Arabic sciences, logic, theology, universities. There's an argument that um, the foundation of European universities was in part a response to the, the system of the madrasa um, in Islamic spaces. 
And the other the, the other thing to point out about these translations of these frame narratives is that they're very plastic. So when you translate in the pre-modern period, you don't just usually, you know, you don't just put one word in for another word, right? You kind of look at the whole thing and you think, what does my readership want out of this? Um, and so you'll get like a lot of transformations in the texts as they're getting translated. So we're not really talking here about like the traditional idea of like influence or impact. It's not like Christians conquered these Muslim areas in Iberia and then suddenly that impact of Arabic culture transformed Europe, right? This is voluntary thing. Like Europeans sought out this knowledge. Um, they wanted to get these translations. They had local reasons for doing so. Individual people felt that they could gain by getting access to this. And then when they commissioned those translations, they commissioned them to be done in certain ways. They adapted them um, significantly as the translations happened and as different um, other creative works started to get built on them. So this is true of any translation movement. Like it's a very creative process. It's never just like a Xerox copy getting made somewhere else. Contact between the different cultures in medieval Iberia resulted in translation and transfer of ideas, but it also created new forms of cultural production. A good example is the Arabic poetic form known as the Muwashah. So it's very common, not just in Al-Andalus, like throughout the Muslim world, like when scholars are giving the history of music, uh, medieval Arabic music, they'll often say such and such person got access to these Byzantine musicians, for example, and then came back and was able to create a new kind of Arabic music. So individual musicians who are being patronized in the Muslim in Muslim spaces often would create these like hybrid musical forms that get noted by the historians and the biographers. And that was certainly going on extensively in Al-Andalus as well. So in many different places throughout the Muslim world, you have kind of a sense that all of these types of music are designed to be sung with Arabic poetry in mind, which has its own kind of metrical demands. But at the same time, different musical innovators are specifically and very intentionally drawing on other cultural influences to create kind of a unique singing style or a unique different kinds of stylistic developments in music. And you have that going on a lot in Al-Andalus. So there were um, schools of music, not like, I don't know how institutionalized they were, but like sort of teaching traditions in specific places that were famous. And, you know, Muslim musicians um, would go to learn in Christian courts and vice versa, right? So you start to really get like a sort of specifically distinctive Andalusi musical style as well. So the Mosha is a genre of song lyrics um, that developed specifically in El Andalus. And what's interesting about it is it's strophic and it's multilingual. And in that way, it is sort of iconic for um, the type of song that is very specific to Al-Andalus. So what is strophic poetry? Most of the poetry that we read is, is in English. Like if you look at like a sonnet or something, like that is strophic poetry. But 
classical Arabic poetry, for the most part, was not strophic. So you didn't have like stanzas, right? Instead, every line has the same meter as every other line, and every line rhymes with the same rhyme letter. So I don't know, if you take like a class in English poetry, they teach you to write like A, B, B, A. The muasha is multilingual. So, so basically you have like different stanzas different verses with a refrain that's repeated and the verses will be in a literary language so formal arabic hebrew typically one of those and then the refrain will usually be in vernacular so it'll either be in arabic dialect or it'll be in romance um which is like the Spanish of that time period, or like the precursor to Spanish of that time period. You know, that's all it is. <laughs> and oftentimes the the verses are spoken in the voice of the male lover, and then the refrain may be in the voice of the beloved, who may or may not be female, but is typically less educated. So it sort of makes sense that uh, she, or maybe in some cases he, is speaking in a, a less literary dialect. This poetry was like bizarrely controversial in scholarship because of this myth that there are two totally separate cultural spaces. There's like the Christian space, which is romance, and then there's the Arabic space, uh, which is Muslim. And that myth doesn't really make sense for Andalus because most people were speaking kind of a vernacular that was sort of combination of romance and Arabic dialect or like more Arabic, but people kind of knew some romance words, like things were very mixed together in reality, right? And that's represented very clearly in these poems. So like if you, I would like to read a little example of one. Um, so then the refrain in the Mosha in dialect is called the Kharja. So here's an example of a kharja. So it's written in Arabic letters. I'm just going to read it as best I can. Uh, if you speak Spanish, this will be meaningful to you. If not, I'm not sure. Meul habib enfermo de meu amar que no ha de estar non ves amibe que sea de no llegar. And the translation of this is, my beloved is sick for love of me. How can he not be so? Do you not see that he is not allowed near me? So the cool thing about this is my beloved is Meol Habib, <laughs> which Habib, of course, is an Arabic word for like a beloved. And it has the Arabic pronoun El, like El Habib, um, which means the. Um, but in this case, Meo, it also has Meo, which is the uh, romance possessive, like my. So it's kind of a combination of of language i mean that's mainly romance of course with like this arabic word stuck in there but that's kind of what the vernacular might have been like right so yeah so the moshe has been like really weirdly controversial maybe we'll talk only about the kharja element of it so if you go to like the way that um, spanish literature traditionally got taught and especially spanish philology which is like the history of the spanish language and how to read old texts they will start with Kharjas, actually, because it's some of the very earliest examples of Spanish literature that exist, even though they're written in Arabic script. But they were they were actually separated out from the poems in which they were found, which doesn't really make much sense. Um, the justification that was given was that, oh, well, maybe these were like popular romance songs that then got incorporated into these mwashahat after the fact, which 
you know, I suppose that could be true, but there's no evidence for that, right? And in fact, the presence of the specific kharja within each specific muashah is usually very logical. Like there's like a clear narrative going on, like she's responding in vernacular in a very specific way that makes sense in the poem, right? So it doesn't really seem, basically, there's not so much evidence for that theory. And it seems like sort of a reason to try to separate out the Spanish elements from the Arabic elements in a poem that, in fact, very accurately represented Andalusia society at the time by itself being hybrid. During the 19th century, when the Arabic-speaking world experienced an intellectual revivalist movement commonly referred to as the Nahda, Authors looked to the Muwasha genre as an authentic form of Arabic song to emulate. Modern authors created new riffs on the Muwasha genre that have blurred our contemporary understanding of the poetic tradition of Muslim Iberia and to some extent erased the multicultural and multilingual context. Much like the Muslim influence on European literature long ignored by scholars, non-Muslims and non-Arabs are often excised from certain tellings of Islamic history. Let's have a short music break to enjoy one of the most famous Muwashah poems of Al-Andalus. It's called Jadak al-Ghaythu, and it's written by Ibn al-Khatib. We'll be learning more about Ibn al-Khatib in a later episode of this series, as he is the main focus of Muhammad Balan's work. For now, we'll just enjoy his music, recreated in this case by Al-Bustan Music in a live concert from 2012. The music director for this performance was Hana Khouri, and the singer, Sonia Mbarak is from Tunisia. You're going to hear instruments like the cello that probably would not have been part of Muwashah performances in Al-Andalus, but you'll also hear instruments like the oud and the kanun, which are mainstays of musical traditions from the Islamic world. Okay, now we're going to switch gears and hear from Fahad Bishara about how Al-Andalus shaped the economies and environments of the modern world. In the 1970s, a scholar named Andrew M. Watson made an argument that the field has been exploring and debating since. He argued for the existence of an Arab or Islamic agricultural revolution that introduced new crops to new regions of the world and fundamentally changed techniques of agriculture and animal husbandry. The basic idea behind the Arab agricultural revolution is that as the Umayyad Empire spreads, uh, covers this territory from essentially the Atlantic all the way into the Western Indian Ocean, 
into South Asia, there is a circulation of crops and agricultural techniques that happens by which, I mean, essentially crops are moving essentially from east to west, right? From the, the eastern part of the world, from South Asia, from China, into uh, the Muslim heartland, and then into Muslim Spain from there. But alongside the movement of those crops is the movement of, or the circulation of agricultural techniques. Uh, and these techniques we might think of as being circulated through texts that are being consumed, that are being read, uh, that are being produced, these sort of uh, botanical, uh, botanical treatises, botanical compendia, that you don't have to go far too far on the internet to be able to see these, um, but that explain these crops, how they work, the conditions within which they grow, how they might be grown, and that these techniques are diffused through those, but then also through the movement of laborers as well. Uh, and we have to be able to account for sort of Watson's understanding that this is not simply... A, a form of knowledge that is moving, that is circulating through texts, but it is also what we might call uh, an embodied knowledge, right? That there is a sort of memorized skill that's sort of passed down from person to person that doesn't necessarily have to do anything, has to have anything to do with book knowledge, but knowing how to handle crops, knowing how to plant, and uh, knowing how to fertilize, knowing how to do these things, that is not academic knowledge as such, but it is knowledge that you learn through doing. So we might call that embodied knowledge. Bashara's point about embodied knowledge is pretty simple. Crops and techniques surrounding their cultivation often move when the communities that wield them move, which means that sometimes texts don't tell the complete story of how things happened. Fields like archaeology have helped show that significant material transformations occurred during the medieval period, even when the textual sources on environmental transformation may be scant. Through the diffusion of crops within the Islamic world, people's diets changed, but so too did their tastes. In thinking about the crops that circulate around the Islamic world, I would say that Watson divides them into essentially two categories. One might think of the like staple crops. These are not particularly exciting to the historian, but they matter a great deal to the people who are consuming them. Um, the grains, rice, wheat, sorghum, these matter a great deal to people who are, uh, who are planting these because these form part of the staple diet of these communities. We might say that these account for the, the vast majority of the crops that are circulating around the Islamic world, but really, um, if we think of the trade around within the Islamic world, but between the Islamic world and other parts of, uh, of the globe, that these actually account for the majority of the goods that are being traded in these places. But then he's also able to account for, uh, or he asks us to think about uh, what we might call uh, luxury items or novel items, right? And some of those are sugar, cotton, the sour orange uh, is one that, that is, is one that I always remember. It's actually, it's not that tasty. It's kind of bitter, uh, but uh, you can use it in all sorts of recipes. You can use it in, you know, people use it in like marmalade, um, but people use it in, you know, in the pre-modern world, you use it in all sorts of uh, jellies and all sorts of jams and all sorts of desserts. And uh, in the pre-modern world, this was, a, you might think of it as a sort of unique flavor, right? And one that 
elites in different parts of the Islamic world would be interested in consuming in various ways. And, uh, you know, there are all sorts of really interesting recipes that are floating around for the pre-modern Islamic world. Thinking about how these these crops circulate, I mean, some of them, like the staple, the staple crops, you know, people people are consuming them. The the sort of the lay population, the dinner population, are are consuming these. But then, if we think about something like uh, the sour orange, we might think of it as something that is produced for consumption by elites, and that then at some point uh, filters down into the general population. We have all sorts of things uh, in our world and in the pre-modern world that uh, that were produced for essentially for like an elite wealthy group of consumers that over time the the status associated with with those items with that sort of consumption with that what we would call conspicuous consumption is something that other people want to partake in and so then these crops become more widespread things like the orange become more widespread things like um, cotton which we might think of as like a nice sort of light fabric uh, that elites get to wear, you know, maybe things like silk or things like that, become become items that normal people would want and that normal people could then consume. One of the best examples of a luxury item that became a staple in world history is sugarcane, which was cultivated in China and India and eventually spread across the globe. Sugar was the first cash crop of the slave plantations founded in the Americas during the 16th century. But Europeans first encountered sugar cultivation in places like Iberia, Sicily, and North Africa, that had been under Muslim rule. Normally, when we think of sugarcane, we don't think of sugarcane as an old world crop, right? We don't think sugar of sugar as an old world product. Any popular association with sugar would uh, would surely anchor it in the Atlantic economy, right? Like when we think of sugar production, we think of the Caribbean, and we think of plantation slavery more specifically. Part of that is the understanding that this this was a crop. Uh, or a commodity at that point that had global demand. It's not something that, actually, it's not something that's limited to Caribbean islands at all. There are all sorts of colonial plantations around the world in which they are they're trying to plant sugar. Part of what makes sugar the, the kind of like mass-consumed commodity today, at least uh, in our sort of received wisdom of the history of sugar, is that this is in part about the Industrial Revolution and the transformation in the kinds of work that we do as people and the kinds of calories that we need to do that kind of work. If we think of textile production and factory work during the Industrial Revolution, well, sugar is an easy way and sugar is a pleasant way in some ways to, to supply those calories. And it uh, lined up very nicely with, uh, with other stimulants that uh, the uh, northwestern European economies, specifically England, but the Dutch as well to a lesser extent, uh, were also bringing in from other parts of, of the world coffee and tea, essentially. So coffee, tea, and sugar, we might say, fed the Industrial Revolution, uh, fed the workers of the Industrial Revolution. And yet, sugar and the spread of sugarcane production has roots in this world, in the Islamic world, and in interchanges between the Islamic world, exchanges between the Islamic world and the East, right? This is not an Atlantic product, even though we have those associations with it. We might think of it as having a much deeper history than that. 
It's not a stretch to say that the plantation economy as we know it could not have existed without the knowledge of sugar cultivation adapted from the Islamic world on the frontiers of Iberia's Christian kingdoms. Before they ever set foot in the Americas, the Spanish and Portuguese established colonies during the 15th century on the Canary Islands and Madeira, respectively. In both cases, those colonies were built on sugar cultivation. You may have heard of a fortified wine called Madeira, for which Portugal is famous. It was made on the island of Madeira, and it's fortified with alcohol distilled from sugarcane that gave it a high enough alcohol content to not go bad on long-distance voyages. More significantly, the island sugar plantations of Iberian empires in the eastern Atlantic birthed the plantation model that would be replicated on Caribbean islands a century later, resulting in a massive economic and environmental change. So then, okay, if we think of the ways in which uh, sugar moves from east, the eastern world, say, to the, we might call it the Mediterranean world, and then we think of the longer histories of uh, European expansion, what we might have learned about in high school as the Age of Discovery. Uh, well, where did the Age of Discovery have its roots? The first, the first arena of European expansion in the, in the world, the first arena of Iberian expansion, Spanish and Portuguese expansion, was not the Atlantic. Nobody knew that there was anything on the other end of the Atlantic, right? The first arena of Iberia expansion was the Mediterranean. Uh, this was the, uh, the center of gravity of the world economy as far as they were concerned. The, we have to remember that the first Spanish and Portuguese colonies um, were not actually in the Americas, nor were they on the West African coast, but they were actually in North Africa, right? These are the first trading factories, the first like, semi-permanent Iberian presence outside of the Iberian Peninsula was in the Mediterranean. And so that they would be able to come into contact with sugar production in places like North Africa, in places like Sicily, in places that they had just recently taken over, sort of the southern Iberian Peninsula, and to recognize the value of that sort of crop, then it begins to make sense that when they traveled across the Atlantic and they ultimately established plantations uh, in the Caribbean, that they think that, well, maybe sugar is something worth, worth producing over here or worth trying out. There's also uh, an added dimension of this, and I'd be remiss not to, not to mention it, that uh, the property rights regimes that the Spanish establish in the Atlantic, the property rights regimes that the Spanish establish in the New World, owe a great deal to Muslim notions of property rights. How one holds land, on what basis one holds land, uh, how much one gives to the sovereign from that land, right? The one-fifth rule of, of sort of taxation, the khums. Uh, this then is transplanted into the, into the New World. Of course, the creation of sugar plantations also entailed other inputs not related to the Islamic world. The form of slavery practice in the Americas looked rather different from what we found in the Islamic world, for example. We're not saying that some model was adapted wholesale. And moreover, Watson's argument has been critiqued for being too bold in using the word revolution. Many decades later, Michael Decker comes along and says, okay, sure, everything Watson says seems to make sense, but he seems to be ignoring a lot of earlier evidence, right? The critique that Decker is making 
is that at least some of the principal crops that Watson is talking about, rice, wheat, sorghum, cotton, these are already around the Mediterranean prior to the emergence of Islam. And his argument is that the Muslims are not engaging in an agricultural revolution at all, but they're building an agrarian system based on what prior empires had done, prior civilizations. The Romans, but really what we're all thinking of here is not the Romans at all. The Romans have long are long gone. But the heirs to the Roman Empire, the Byzantines, whom the, the Muslims actually uh, end up conquering, uh, whose, whose territories the Muslims actually end up conquering. Uh, and so he characterizes the early Muslims essentially as usurpers, as agricultural usurpers, saying that they, they usurped the crops and techniques that essentially the Romans and their heirs, the Byzantines, had already introduced. So rather than thinking of it as an agricultural revolution, we might call it an agricultural evolution. And yet Muslim empires do spread crops around the Arabian Peninsula and Mediterranean. That much we know is clear. The spread of sugarcane, which we had just talked about, for example, uh, which do spread from, it does spread from the east to different parts of the Islamic world, it's very difficult to, to deny that uh, the Umayyads and the Abbasids and later empires played a major role in the diffusion of these particular crops. They may not have introduced those crops to the Islamic world, but did they provide the infrastructure through which the cultivation and harvesting and circulation of those crops within particular marketplaces, did they provide that infrastructure to happen? That part of the argument uh, that Watson makes remains more or less intact. Muslims brought new crops to Iberia, as well as new methods of irrigation and farming, like terraces. They also introduced new modes of pastoralism. The agrarian legacies of Muslim Iberia were visible not only in modern Spain and Portugal, but also in the Americas where Alfred Crosby has argued that early European empires created what he calls Neo-Europes, where crops and animals from the Mediterranean world played an important role. For Fahad Bishara, the real story here isn't about how Muslims made the modern world per se. Rather, it's that the pre-modern world was much more interconnected than we often assume. The question of like who did it first uh, becomes kind of a strange question to ask, because you know, who's to say whether the Byzantines did it first or the Romans did it first or whether they got it from the Arabs or whether they got it from the Greeks or, you know, who knows? Who knows what, right? And it's it's the ways in which we take these materials and we interpret them and we read them and the, the questions that we ask of them uh, that, that help us see uh, what, you know, how closed or how open these processes might be. But overwhelmingly, as far as we know, if you want to get beyond elite histories, the vast majority of the Andalusi populations of conquered cities like Toledo, like Valencia, like even Barcelona early on, stay. Because they actually don't have the means to leave. The history of the Mudejars of Spain is actually one that's very important. And those guys move around too, right, between Spanish Christian cities. People who were born in Valencia might end up in, uh, in um, Leon, for example, or Burgos. Those who are from Toledo could easily end up in Seville. So migration is a big part of the story of how Andalusia identity actually gets 
maybe disseminated even, because they all share one thing, which is this nispa and this patronymic, which traces them back to an ancestral town that falls in what we'd call Spain or Portugal today. In this episode, we talked about some of the legacies of El Andalus. Yet we didn't quite finish the story of how the Muslim presence in Iberia finally came to an end. We'll address that story in the final episode of this series, because it takes us all the way into the early modern period. Before we get there, there's still a lot more medieval Islamic history to explore. In the next installment, we're looking into another arena of contact between Europe and the Islamic world, the Crusades. The wars known as the Crusades are a big deal in European history, but in this series, we're going to look at what they meant for the Islamic world specifically. We'll also talk more about impacts of cultural encounters that, while occurring within the context of violent and destructive conflicts, also produce new developments. I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening and remind you that you can find more materials on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Take care, everybody.